0: Hello oh, and welcome to the O3C podcast. It's the season finale. It's the Play Go ranking episode. Oh, I am! I am Jonathan Dunn. Thank you for joining me here today. It's Chris Dow. Yes, it is! Wow, oh, my God, it's so important. Video games! <laughs> Announcement! Announcement! Oh
1: boom 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 it's the last full episode of season five before we take a little break to recharge our Eye batteries the rough plan is as such we take a month off you catch up on old episodes or if you're a patreon sub all the details of course are at patreon.com o3c games you can catch up on bonus episodes deleted scenes or other bonus content as well as joining us in the patreon exclusive discord but that's not all if you head to our website at o3c.games, there's a new sign up link right at the bloody top of the page, and that will allow you to enter your email address to receive the brand spanking new o3c newsletter. Once weekly during our little break and hopefully beyond, you'll receive gaming updates as to what we've been playing, what we've been up to, what we recommend, games or otherwise. And there'll be opportunities for community engagement too what have you been playing what have your cats or dogs enjoyed watching you play again that's o3c.games for the newsletter sign up link or you can always go to o 3 cgames support for direct links to the aforementioned patreon or a one-off donation link and right bloody here right bloody now it's the last episode of the season
0: it's a play-ditch. it's a play-ditch. it's a play it's a play. It's a play date for now so it all (laughs) come down to this the final playdate ranking episode after a full season covering the full season of games on the cranky little yellow handheld we are going to give you the full rundown of worstest to bestest that the first season of official playdate games has had to offer In order to get the order of the order of these games in some sort of combined fashion what we did was I made my top 26 list of the season one games that being all of the games in the order that I like them as our lists prone to be Chris did the same we then gave each of the games a combined score through some metric to then give them an average ranking put that together it's in this order here we go 26 games they're coming at you and We're not going to waste any time chatting about anything else. Instead, we're going to dive right into the shallow end and break our necks on the stark (laughs) marbled floor of the pool, or the gaming equivalent of uh, that horrible injury. The worst game of Playdate Season 1 in position number 26 is Lost Your Marbles. Of course. Lost Your Marbles is the uh, the first offering from Sweet Baby Inc., the narrative consultant company who frontlined the excellent scheme to offer opportunities to marginalised and fledgling developers to make a game with their support. Lost Your Marbles is a narrative game where you are trying to find your missing dog and you make some light story choices through some incredibly poorly implemented ball rolling <laughs> mini games yes you do the highlight uh, aside from the ambition of sweet baby inc to diversify the industry the art in the game is nice it, it, it's there dogs are great and this dog's called minty so so we had to like it the low light <laughs> is the absolutely shoddy writing unbelievably dull and unengaging The fact that this has come from a company who specialises in narrative is astounding. The (laughs) mechanics of the ball rolling marble sections is also painful to endure, horrible to look at, and a general piece of shit decision. (laughs) Next.
1: (laughs) 25. Executive Golf DX. Every developer who's picked up their playdate has likely started their experimentation with the device, thinking, what about a fishing game? Or what about a golf game? And it pains me, it really mm. pains me, that a really talented developer like Dave makes, famed for Mixolumia, I'm a big fan. Good game. They were the only ones to take up the golf mantle and yet have whiffed things mm. this far to create something that just isn't any fun at all. The highlight is for sure the audio design and soundtrack. I've asked before, but I'm happy to ask again. Dave, please create a Mixolumia sound pack using some of these assets. I'll give you some extra money if it takes that, but... That would be a way I'd actually enjoy this stuff. The low light is the frustration that comes from actually trying to play the game in earnest. Because it's not quite silly enough like Quop or Octodad or Surgeon Simulator to make doing badly the enjoyable meat and potatoes of the game. It's not designed with that level of outward knowing. It's just frustrating. Instead, it just feels unsatisfying from your first part right up until whenever you put the thing down. It so narrowly misses out on the bottom spot of the season, but really not by much, if we're being honest. No, no, it's, it's, it's
0: shit. Number 24. <laughs> B360 is the, the resulting what-if output of combining a classic breakout-style game with a circle. 360-degree block breaking, but still basically confined to four sides of a square in reality. It's the video game equivalent of playing tennis by yourself <laughs> and having to run round the net after every shot. It is exhausting the highlight it's probably that stupid backstory that panic created for this game where they yeah. pretended that this is actually a port of a 40 year old arcade game pulled out of their archives it's pretty funny the low light is that the backstory would have made me care a bit more about anything else in the game if it was true <laughs> yeah yeah 23 recommendation dog mm. having covered this
1: most recently i can't say too much more to be honest it was literally the last playdate episode we did it's a functionally sound score chaser that is mainly let down by it failing to offer any sort of skill continuum on which to improve or any sort of incentive to try and improve anyway. The highlight, it's got cute art, it's got a nice setting, even if it's all just window dressing. And the low light for me, it just never feels any more than a very polished proof of concept. If you play around to completion once, you have seen absolutely everything there is to see. And your second run will feel much the same as your first, And if for some reason you stick around to play a third, fourth, fifth playthrough, you'll soon realize that your score just isn't going to improve by that much. The point system is fast rendered, pretty pointless.
0: Number 22, Real Steel. Another sweet baby. Yeah. (laughs) It was a pretty low ranking week for the bonus releases of Real Steel and Recommendation Dog. Real Steel is the fishing game Playdate fans were waiting for, yeah. but only if your fishing rod was the size of a car, your bait was a burglar, and your fish <laughs> was some art you were trying to heist out of a variety of vertical establishments riddled with lasers, traps, and treasures. Highlight, it's not a bad mechanic, and with some refinement, it would have been a really enjoyable game. The low light is the implementation. Of everything. It's poor performance, <laughs> clumsy controls and inability to create menus somehow leading to just a very unsatisfying gaming experience. All in all, shame. It's a shame. Who'd have thought that having proper menus would be
1: such a deal breaker, but it really does make the game feel less finished.
0: It really does. It, it really, really, really does. does. Which is funny because when we used to make video games as kids together, all we would do is make a title screen, maybe a menu and then never make any more of the game. It felt like that's what games had to have.
1: Yeah. You know, even with our extremely limited experience of actual development and game design, it felt like, well, if you've got a title screen, you're halfway there. If you've got a name for the thing, you've got a silly picture on the title screen, probably a sound effect to go with it when you press play. That's a game. (laughs) Mate, we were light years ahead. (laughs) Number 21, Questy Chess. Real squandered potential here. I do think this game has really good vision and aesthetic design. It's got really nice outside-the-box thinking to take the recognizable hard-coded rules that we all recognize in chess and apply them in a very different genre so it becomes chess meets i guess action rpg it's just a shame then that it doesn't feel this game was put in front of enough eyes prior to going gold as it were because there's just too many missteps that should have been caught in play testing and that could have made a great concept far more than the kind of middling execution that it ended up offering the best part of the package is the vibe that it mm. exudes a lot of Playnet games have a vibe but this in particular I think really does and it really tries to sell itself on that it sets out to feel like you're working with old sort of pre-Windows computer tech and it really does nail that whole conceptual wrapping a little nod as well it's got great ambient drone music too it it's does it's worth
0: checking out on Bandcamp it it's, does
1: it's really cool
0: it felt like playing on my dad's old Amstrad PCW whilst oh. there was some uh, reverb heavy roadworks going on outside <laughs> The low point. <laughs> well, the low point is just having to think about
1: Balan Wonderworld, a game I famously gave five out of ten. But in the way this game, you're collecting different chess pieces, essentially as the different hats of Wonderworld, <laughs> to get through different puzzles. And when you run out of said hat, you have to go back and do the level again to collect another hat, potentially
0: fail, and do it
1: again. No, thank you.
0: Twenty snack another what if game here asking what if you were playing on the classic game snake on your nokia 3210 uh, and and your snake could jump oh yeah you could jump over yourself and onto yourself to give you more movement options and the fruit is trying to eat you as well that's the twist that's the game the highlight it is a fun twist on snake and it's nice to have snake on your playdate if you do want to scratch that itch the low light I don't want to scratch that itch, <laughs> and even if it is just a high score chaser, which isn't really my personal brand of selected bag, there are far more engaging high score chaser games available on the playdate. But it's okay. Nineteen
1: spell corked. Spell corked is just cooking mama. If it were passed through a wizards and witches filter, that's it really. The positives are that it showcases the full range of playdate control options better than almost any other game. Mm. It showcases just how high-fidelity art can be, even on a low-resolution 1-bit display. Yeah, It showcases that the machine's got pretty good audio capabilities. Like, it's a good demo package, as it were, in the same way that Wii Sports made you go, oh, can could do all these things with this little remote control. It's kind of just ticking boxes like that. Basically, it's the game to show someone in order to sell the idea that this machine may look like it's technically hamstrung, but it is in no way a retro machine. You know, it's a very modern piece of hardware that's just tied to certain retro sensibilities, I guess. There are many better games on the Playdate, though, but at first glance, few of them are technically as impressive, I guess, as Spellcourt to look at in motion. A big negative for me at least was the way the game leans so far into accessibility, which of course is ostensibly a good thing. We've had lots of conversations about the importance yeah. of kind of, you know, opening up games to other people, but it does kind of remove the reason to play it because after you've done a few rounds you realize that producing a potion of better quality has basically no bearing on your progress or the story and so very quickly i just started rushing through each recipe as shittily as possible because i knew that long term i'd still win you know purely by way of wizardry wizardly attrition
0: absolutely it's like it's like folding towels in prison you can fold them as fast as you want (laughs) but they're just gonna keep coming (laughs) 18 forest burns up in smoke When Panic published the atmospheric narrative game Firewatch, who wasn't asking for a spin-off game featuring (laughs) the fictional mascot of the fire safety company you represent? (laughs) Whoever was asking got it. You play as Forrest Burns, a fire safety warden going through procedurally generated platforming stages, trying to outrun forest fires and save little boy and girl scouts. Highlight, it's a decent enough platform game with solid mechanics. I think it showcases the play deck's potential to be a good device to have good platforming games on. Yeah. The low light is the procedurally generated stages. They do offer admittedly more variety in the game, but they're also just too short to feel worthwhile. And once you've collected all the pickups, there's absolutely no reason to play the game again because you're never going to play the same level again twice to beat your score, which for some reason it gives you. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, uh, make your mind
1: up. It's a proof of concept, isn't it? It feels like Mm. here's the engine that could power a good platform game. We just haven't made the good platform game yet. Yeah. (laughs) Number 17, the week one classic Whitewater Wipeout. Mm. This is not my favourite game on the device at all. But for some reason, it is a game that I've consistently come back to. And I can say that in all honesty, I have picked it up far more than I thought I would as the season went on. It's the true definition of a score chaser. It's an excellent thing to just have in your pocket when you find yourself with a literal window of two minutes to kill because it fits into two minutes. And that, again, is not hyperbolizing. Mm. Every run is short. The highlight is absolutely when you start to master its crank controls because the first half an hour of the game was infuriating. (laughs) I just could not get the hang of what it was asking me to do. And then suddenly it just clicks and there becomes this kind of specific unbreakable logic to the whole thing. And then you actively start to feel a bit silly for not being able to understand it previously. And that transition of suddenly being like, I can consistently do this, was really nice to feel, to actually get good at a physical task. The low point though, is the realization that the game starts and ends with that control mastery. And once you can consistently pull off a triple or quadruple spin, there really isn't any more game to conquer unless you're aiming for the very top of the leaderboards, which at this stage, even with the limited install base of the play date, the people at the top, their scores are so massively inflated <laughs> that they've become totally disheartening rather than inspiring. I'm not looking at that and thinking like one good run and I'll have it. <laughs> this is like no six full
0: years of play
1: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> The one thing I will say about White Water Wipeout <laughs> is that it went up in my estimation throughout the season of games because I realised just how incredibly well made the game is. I don't find it particularly engaging. I don't like high score chasers. Like you said, the mechanic, once you sort of got to grips with it, that's kind of it. But it is so well made compared to so many other Playdate games. And it's not saying that loads of Playdate games out there are absolute tosh. But it really made me appreciate just what an excellent job they've done in making it. And certainly learning about what the inspiration for the game was. It being one of those like California game style mini games. Yeah it really makes me wish that they'd develop maybe, you know, three other similar style games and release them as a little package. Because then I think... Then you're really on to something. Absolutely. Number sixteen, Demon Quest eighty five. A retro-infused narrative puzzle game, I think. I guess. You have to study your book of arcane magic to then choose the and I mean study. <laughs> then you choose the right combination of components from around your house to successfully summon a variety of demons into the lives of you and your circle of school friends. Highlight, really good concept. Absolutely stunning art. Yeah. The low light is I'm me. Like, it's just being in my mid 30s trying to get my brain to retain the information needed to solve the puzzles. I I feel bad about this one because the writing is great as well, and you could even play this game under your bed covers with a torch, like an old ghost story, for like maximum atmosphere. Yeah. It'd be great. But I think more than anything, it shows how much young people love the 80s aesthetic more than the people who are now old enough to have lived through it and oh, can't, completely. Just, just can't take this shit anymore. Completely. I mean, look at the biggest
1: audience of, say, Stranger Things. Yeah. It's like teens now. Yeah. The kids I teach at school are all banging into Stranger Things, whether or not it's appropriate for some of the younger people that are obsessed with it. Yeah. It's the type of thing that they watch and go, oh, bright colours. Teenagers with mullets. Imagine the 80s <laughs> when we're going wasn't all that to be honest in the, in the few years we lived through it yeah 15 battleship godios this is the most stripped back retro presentation with one of the most high concept game designs on the play Day, <laughs> i yeah. think as a combination a side scrolling shooter presented as if it were on the game boy circuit its launch in 1989 but on top of that with a limited ammunition system that you must recollect after it ricochets off an enemy like alleyway And just for good measure, it uses Forza Horizon's Rewind functionality as well, for some reason. I loved getting used to the game's bizarre internal logic and making infinitesimal progress through its grueling run out of lives and run-out-of-lives-in-its-back-to-the-start campaign. But I wish the game did a bit more with its sound design, especially. It's sparse to the point of being a little bit unnerving, honestly. yeah, Like a soundscape made up of literal bleeps and bloops. Like when a soap opera, say EastEnders, needs to give quick
0: audio shorthand for youth is playing a game. <laughs> that kind of like, beep boop, boop, whoop. <laughs> yeah, it was too much for me. I think maybe I was just too unnerved by that atmosphere. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. It's I tough. loved it. Like, in a way. <laughs> yeah. Number 14, Inventory Hero. Another panic-developed game here, which almost successfully conjures the illusion of being a deep puzzle adventure high score chasing arcade game. You get full control over the inventory of an adventuring character from a classic RPG. You don't get to control anything else but managing their inventory is key to their success as you sort the wheat from the chaff, making sure they are equipped with the best weapons and armour and you're not cluttering up your precious pocket space with fish, sticks, shit. (laughs) Highlight. It is quite a nice rhythm you get into when you get to the later levels and it's going really, really fast. The art and animations are really nice as well, like when your character in the simulated adventure atop the screen is indeed donning all of the ludicrous pieces of armour that you are whacking on them. The low light is that it is just window dressing for a fairly shallow game that you don't have anywhere near as much control over as you may think. Yeah. Repeated playthroughs show that there isn't any real strategy you can adopt to get better at the game either, and also that, because of the randomised nature of things, some runs just feel doomed to fail and they're outside of your control, but yeah. it's fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the games in this area, it seems like they're lowish down the list because they're in kind of this mid-teen area. They're all pretty solid. We had a lot of fun with most of these, but there's just things they could do better. Yeah. Another example of that, number 13, Echoic Memory. It's a simple Simon Says style game of pairs when you break it down, but one that uses garbled audio loops that you must decipher using the crank instead of repeating drawn imagery on the back of cards like you traditionally play it. This whole concept is coupled with some really clever writing, almost algorithmic narrative design, I think, that Mm. feeds kind of a slightly different story every time you play. It's a very cool game. And I really like the writing in the game. It's the first of a couple games this season that, rightly or wrongly, feel heavily inspired by Kentucky Route Zero's approach to game design and storytelling. That is to say, it largely ignores how games have followed design trends and instead looks to other media, like plays or poetry or fine art and that sort of thing. And I love that. We need more of that. We need just games to look outside of themselves. But I found the audio puzzles themselves just too easy to really enjoy. Judging by other responses online, I may be in the minority here, because once you got the hang of what each audio modifier was doing when it was introduced, it was impossible not to hear the matches for me. And again, I said at the time, I've been involved in music most of my life, as have you. So maybe we have kind of a leg up on this, whereas other people might listen to that and be like, oh, I've got absolutely no idea. Because as I found out teaching music for the last few years, sometimes pressing a note in front of a child is not enough for them to be able to identify the same key that your finger is on. (laughs) But, you know, perhaps for this game, for me, with a bit more challenge, I think this whole package could have ended up a lot higher in the list. I really liked it. It just wasn't fun enough from that kind of like gamey perspective. I didn't feel like there was that much pushing me forwards outside of the notably really cool art and music and kind of overall aesthetic design
0: 12 omaze that's so amazing cranking and circles go hand in hand like a lover with a simple cooing dove (laughs) omaze is all about the circles it will lay out a series of the fuckers in front of you and you need to use the crank to control another little circle running around the inside perimeter of them trying to avoid obstacles and whacking a button to jump between circles Betwixt. (laughs) Highlight, it's a really nice mechanic for a puzzle game that also combines some quick action elements to it and gets your brain thinking about things just in a very different way to how you would have played games similar to this before because of the crank and how your body inputs this control. The low light, I mean, the main challenge with this game is making sure you crank the right direction around the circles to avoid the obstacles. When you jump between the circles, the control flips because you're now on the opposite side of another circle. And that makes sense in theory, but not in body. Muscle memory just never, ever got used to it. Again, it's a mid-30s thing, probably. Like, I can't learn new things now, Dave. I'm too old.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really frustrating because I wanted to enjoy the game far more than I did. And Mm. as you've alluded to, it's because brain wouldn't have it. And it wasn't that the game is broken in any way at all. (laughs) It's a really well put together package, but too hard to get used to going round or round backwards. (laughs) Mm. Commonly known as clockwise and anti-clockwise. Yeah. (laughs) Number 11, Flipper Lifter. I like this game a lot. It's one of the most polished score chasers on the machine. You have to get little chubby penguins to the right floor of their little penguin complex using a hand-cranked elevator that feels very nice to use. It's no fish and feathers, a game I'll bang the drum for for the rest of time, to be honest, and obviously that fish is a penguin too, which is why I popped it in here, but it is cute it offers a good sense of level progression it's learnable it's masterable and crucially it's consistently satisfying to interact with the crank just feels nice the game's strongest point is without doubt the way it gives the impression of crank resistance dependent on the number or weight of penguins in your elevator and it's a real masterclass in how to use a combination of visual and audio cues to project the impression of a physical feeling. Yeah. Because obviously there is no force feedback in this machine, but it somehow felt like I was being given some sort of force feedback. Yeah. My only real criticism of Flipper Lifter is that I wanted more. You know, I wanted some more stages. I wanted some more little tunes. I wanted some more playful modifiers placed on the central lift mechanic. If you think about a game like Overcooked or any number of those party games like Moving Out or Tools Up, they all take a simple, immediately understandable premise and then essentially spend... 100 levels or so tweaking and subverting it to make you reconsider your approach each time and flipper lifter i think has the core game to do that so it could have been here's a level that's icy here's a level that's underwater here's a level where a elevator might break and you need to move to another one or something like that there's all sorts of variations and modifiers they could have used that they didn't exploit as much as they could have knock
0: knock who's there the top 10 playdate season one games hello (laughs) number 10 ratcheteer I'm not happy this game has ended up so low down the <laughs> list because this is a fully fledged top down Zelda style game, very, very much in the style of Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. <laughs> I wrote that as a typo and then found it hilarious, yeah, so I kept it in. it in. Keep it in. It features all the familiar elements from that sort of game with sword combat, various abilities, dungeons, bosses, big overarching story. It's absolutely astoundingly well made. It's got great gameplay and performance and art and music. It's got innovative use of the crank for your different items. I'll start with the low light here. And that is the literal low light of the game's opening areas where you have to use your crank powered lamp to light up the darkness. It is a great concept and works well, but it should have been reserved for later areas in the game when you got used to all of the other elements in the game. As it is, it makes for a frustrating first hour of the game, which saw yes. Chris Dow chuck yes. it in and yes. not persevere to the absolutely gold beyond, resulting in the biggest ranking swing of any game in this list. To be fair, though, I was so annoyed in the first 10 minutes of it that I, too, uninstalled the game in a huff. But then <laughs> I did then do my job properly and not be a weenie. Oh. The highlight is literally everything else in the game. It's certainly the most well-rounded quote unquote proper game on the console yeah it's six hour runtime which would be sniffed at by any zelda fan on another console here makes it feel like an epic in the best way possible if only they just shuffled a few things around in the game just to get that balance right it would have easily been a top three for both of us i think but uh yeah it is still a staggering staggering piece
1: numero nine sasquatches i think sasquatches maybe just above Ratcheteer is the most impressive game on the device, but the wide feature scope is also what makes it a struggle to actually commit to and play fully on the machine. You know, some games are just a little bit too light to feel substantial enough to earn their place in the season, like maybe Snack or Whitewater Wipeout. Others are a bit too heavy, and Sasquatches is definitely a game that finds itself buried, I think in part, by its own ludicrous ambition, which is to meld an advanced Wars-style grid tactics game with Pokemon Snap on a tiny Mm -hmm. pocket sized piece of tech. I love, love, love the photo mechanics themselves. I really like the way that the 3D scene, when you move into photography mode, is rendered using data trawled from the map grid itself, and then accordingly scaled with its sprites. And it never stopped being exciting transitioning between the strategy part of the game to the photography part of the game, because the effect just never lost any of its impressiveness for me. I just loved Mm. seeing it every time. And it's a real achievement to make something function as well as that and look as good as this in tandem. Yeah. But the problem, as I mentioned, the learning curve is really steep with this one. And even after several maps worth of adventuring, I'd still forget entire mechanics or make quite <laughs> silly mistakes because I was tripping over my own fingers with the controls. To streamline things too much would have been to take away some of the game's charm. Absolutely. I think it's a really hard tightrope to walk. But I think it would have benefited from certain aspects maybe being pared back just a little. To fit the place of the device a bit better because as much as i said white water wipeout ended up being the game you could play for a little two minute window you needed at least half an hour to sit down and play around the sasquatches and feel like you made any progress at all and i don't always have that time you know as i've mentioned before the play date very much is my console to play in between other stuff as a little reward when i'm doing work while i'm having a poo whatever it might be it's a nice thing to have for those sort of moments and I don't want to have numb legs if I'm sat playing a game for an hour.
0: <laughs> yeah. Number eight, Casual Birder. So I've got two Pokemon Snapper-like games in a row here. Yeah. Uh, it, this is a delightful little top-down narrative game with a point-and-click style puzzle-solving element combined with Pokemon Snap-style cause-and-effect gameplay to photograph a series of birds fluttering their way around a little island. It's got a lovely simple art style. It's got a very quaint atmosphere combined with a very cool photography mechanic where you... Frame your shot, and then use the crank to adjust the focus of your camera. Very cool. Highlight—it's just really good. It worked especially well combined with white water wipeout in Week White Water, White Water, White Water, White White Water Week One to showcase the <laughs> versatility of the playdate. Can you smell toast? Uh, the like the playdate wasn't just a machine for arcade score chasers, but you could tell innovative new stories with new and exciting mechanics too. The only low light was that I just kind of wish there was more of the game, to be honest. I know that developers and audiences alike are still getting used to what the play date is best suited for. And it could have been the case that week one, I would have been totally put off if I'd only just completed one out of five islands in the game. Yeah, But this is the sort of game that I would enjoy that level of content for, I think. It's lovely. It's a nice
1: one. It is a nice one. Number seven, Hyper Meteor snack that you mentioned earlier obviously takes its cues from earlier nokia phone gaming Whitewater wipeout draws on early microcomputer stuff like california games i feel like flipper lifter feels closest to games like flight control that filled the ios app store for the first big year in that it's kind of slightly tarted up score chasing games but hyper Meteor i think is the most golden era arcade game in the entire season because it's asteroids but play datified with a touch of the polarity mechanic from Ikaruga, for good measure, as well. It's all positives here. I think it plays really well. It feels really good. The developer Vertex Pop already made a bit of a name for themselves previously with Graceful Explosion Machine in the early days of the Switch eShop. And there's every bit of that game's polish in Hypermeteor but scaled really sensibly to work with the limitations of the play date. The only negatives truly come from personal preference. Yeah. Because, as you've said throughout the season, if shooters or arcade games are not necessarily your thing you'll probably get bored and that's completely fair enough you know it's just a different style of game but otherwise i think this is a top tier playdate game and a wonderful thing again to have quick
0: access to in a gaming pinch number six crankin's time travel adventure oh your boy is late for a date (laughs) you use the crank to make him run towards said date and the faster you crank the faster you run however the world around him always moves at the same pace, so you need to time the rate of your animation to avoid the ever increasing obstacles standing in your way across a whole bunch of stages. I think we said it at the time. This should have been a week one game paired yeah. with Casual Birder. Yeah. I think it almost feels like crankin is an unofficial mascot for the play date as well. Absolutely. The main highlight for me is the excellent, excellent animation, and it has to be because of the role it plays in the gameplay. But it's such clear and clean design that it reads brilliantly. And it means that it's always funny. It's always funny to sort of wind this wobbly man up and around. <laughs> it's always funny to avoid hurdles and holes and poo. The only low light is it gets really hard quite quickly. It's got quite a steep curve, I found. I never finished it. No, nope, me neither. It's too, hard. <laughs> too hard. Too hard. Too hard. Too hard. Number five. And
1: I'm really happy this made it into the top five. Yeah. It's not going to be in the top five of anyone else's list on the Playdate Planet, I wouldn't have thought. Boogie Loops. I just think it's really cool that there are tools on the playdate as well as games, and if you go over to itch.io now, there's a decent selection of noise-making apps you can get. There's very specific applications that will help score D and D games or track stats and other board games. And on the catalog now, there's a great suite of tools called Playmaker, which takes its cues from things like Mario Paint on the snares to allow for drawn creations or musical compositions or block-based sculptures. And it's very cool, but I know that neither of us have given it much time thus far, which is why we haven't really talked about it. Playmaker, though, does not exist without Boogie Loops, I feel. And even if the real inspiration for that project was Mario Paint, like I said, Boogie Loops laid the groundwork to say this little low-powered device is capable of being a creative tool. And I think Playmaker, then, is really the next evolution of that sort of concept. For those that want to mess about and make stuff, here's a little suite of options to do so. I just really loved making stupid little tracks using boogie loops it's limited due to unoptimized performance and that was a frustration for both of us when we first talked about it and I think we could all admit that it would definitely have run better if it wasn't making giant pizza sprites dance along to your little dance hall rhythms just be able to turn them off if you want it's an easy fix isn't it but it's playful it's really fun and as a little composition tool it's surprisingly powerful Despite only letting you control a bass line, a melody and some simple
0: percussion, you can make some cool stuff. And I I did have a lot of fun doing so. So I think this game has got the second biggest swing in the ranking between us after Ratcheteer because I by no means hated this game, but I didn't love it as much as you did, even though I did have a really nice time making some tunes with it. But when I'm creating stuff, be that films or graphics or music, there's a level of precision that I require to be happy with how I'm doing things. It's why I don't tend to do anything that's not digital, really, because I like to have as much control over things as possible and... My hands are not them. (laughs) So the shuffling frame rate that comes with the giant dancing sprites just really wound me up. Which is fair enough. (laughs) The game not being able to maintain a consistent rhythm when scrolling along through your composition, to me, is a major flaw.
1: Yeah, And so
0: I never had full confidence that what I'd made was actually what I'd made if I'd put the swing beat in or if it just felt like changing the tempo on a whim. yeah. (laughs) I don't know how this didn't get addressed in testing because it's one of those things that I think is so important. If you don't get that right, you don't have a game. This game does not work if that isn't right. Yeah. It's not quite that serious because I do still think the game is good and enjoyable, but it's just not perhaps for a perfectionist like me. That's fair enough. Number four Hello. is Zipper. Oh. Zipper is the first game that really surprised me in the season because it was just so, so different to anything I'd played before, not just on the play date. So the premise is you spawn as a single shinobi warrior on an isometric plane. You move on a grid based system in the four cardinal directions. When you enter a scene with enemies in, any amount of squares you move, they will also move simultaneously. But because you are a master of stealth and combat, you can use the crank to simulate how all the movement is going to unfold before you commit to doing it. This way you can make sure that you get your placement right so that you get your attacks in without being hit yourself. And it's crucial you get that right, because one hit and you're back to the beginning of this game, because it is absolutely brutal. But my goodness, it is so classy. It's got so much style and atmosphere that it makes spending time in the game just so incredibly involving. It's a stunning achievement. Like, it's a game that doesn't feel like it could properly exist outside of the play date, which I think is another thing why I was so taken aback by it as well. Like, this was the first game where I thought, ah, okay, I think I know you know what the playdates for now it's really quite something it's a real slice of vibe i still do need to complete it though (laughs) yeah yeah i think zipper may have been the first game we both played in the
1: season that made us sit up and go fucking hell (laughs) how on earth is this running on this thing because again it's a deceptively powerful than a machine yeah and the combination of mechanical design being this wonderfully abstract approach to turn-based strategy games but with An aesthetic that we both said previously does a better job of invoking Kurosawa than Ghosts of Tsushima. Yeah. That's really special in itself. It's a punishing game, but not in the same way Battleship Godios was. Because even though both of those send you back to the start if you mess up, the use of the crank here to let you see ahead as opposed to rewinding a fuck-up means that you're always in control.
0: Mm. And
1: even though that means, yes, it's still possible to get backed into a corner through your own kind of positional mismanagement, or if you commit a bit too early to something it's still your fault. And you can kind of see that and be like, ah, well, next time I just won't won't be a dick. <laughs> I'll just do it properly. <laughs> One thing I worry about with the playdate going forwards, and this is a genuine sort of uh, anxiety around the device, the length of time developers had to create for these season entries, like Bennett Foddy, who made Zipper, says it was in some sort of development for the best part of five years. Yeah. And I think that slow considered development cycle is absolutely what a game of this pointed sharpness needed to excel something like real steel was by the developers own admission completed in like six months and yeah maybe that will explain some of its rougher edges but really who does have five years to produce a game for a device like this where sales are not guaranteed and you know playdate fronted i think a lot of money via panic up front to these developers to say we want you involved here's a big chunk can you make something for us and they dutifully did but I don't know what's going to happen going forwards. So they haven't announced anything about a potential season two, which I think would be great. We'll see. Either way, though, Zipper as it stands on the playday, in our hands, is an unbelievable little thing. And I really hope more kind of auteur developers like Foddy can be convinced to keep exploring what this machine is capable of into the future, because it's not anywhere else, and it probably never will be. Speaking of going
0: into the future, number three, Star Sled. Whee! <laughs> star sled is such a brilliant game it's exactly what i want from my arcadey games in that it's also a modern game just a high score chaser isn't enough for me which is why star sled succeeds where hyper meteor doesn't for me and it's an easy comparison point because they both probably had a very similar starting point how would asteroids work on the play date yeah but whereas hyper meteor stopped at you know just sort of one or two little iterations Star Sled really evolved that formula and continued to develop and refine until you had this incredibly complete package that didn't just have fast, tight, arcadey action with you flying around space, avoiding obstacles and looping elements to attack, but it also had levels and different modes so that you could continually find new things, not just keep playing the same level, you know, for a higher score. It's really good.
1: You know, you zip around little space stages, you encircle things. It's like Nights into Dreams. We all love that on the Sega Saturn. Yeah. And it all comes with those lovely, like, analog sweeps of the crank. It just feels great to do. It's arcadey with great potential to improve scores and times, if that's what you want. But it's also level-based, like you said. And that satiates everyone, kind of no matter your genre, predilections. And I think that's really clever. It's just an intelligent way to approach it. It reminds me a little bit of how games were initially transitioned from the arcade to home machines like the NES and the Master System in the late 80s. Because at first, most games that made that jump were just straight one-to-one conversions as much as possible. And they basically said, well, you're playing the game that you used to have to spend 50p on every time. So that'll keep them happy. But soon, I think both Sega and Nintendo, as well as like third-party developers like Capcom, started thinking well, if we're not trying to rob someone of credits, mm-hmm. should we maybe approach this in a different way? Yeah, And so games started to become more expensive and had more progression or character development that made it just feel more complete and more than just a high score table. And I think there's a real difference and distance between these titles. So say the original Space Invaders, as it existed as a pure arcade game in 1978, it's been adapted again and again and again, but compare it to like a modern version of the game in Space Invaders Extreme, they are fundamentally the same thing. You just shoot little things that are approaching down the screen. But one feels like an arcade game, as we understand it, and one feels like a proper console game or handheld game that you want to come back to and improve and make progress and get to the next stage. And that's why I think Hyper Media will sit much lower on the list and Star Sled ends up with the bronze spot because it just does way more to acknowledge what games need to engage players in the 2020s, say. It's really good. Mm number two number two is pick pack pup three. i'm really happy we've got such a good puzzler in the play next first season match three but with a twist because you're grouping like items together so that they can be boxed and shipped from an analog of an amazon warehouse and you are a dog because Playdate standard <laughs> but the cutesy exterior actually helps the developers get across their anti-capitalism message in a way that retains humor and bite all at once which is oh yeah a nice little tweak Armando Iannucci's Candy Crush (laughs) 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 oh wow there's a whole swathe of play modes you can approach
0: the game however you want it offers plenty to do even after the story mode is run really loved it it's really great fun it's got excellent graphics and art style making sure that like all the different elements that you're working with look distinctly different but also recognizable and fun but crucially the gameplay is really tight and it feels very responsive so it's a satisfying experience for something that is you know in essence quite simple but when it's done this well and presented this delightfully that's sometimes all you need you're completely right
1: (laughs) you're really right (laughs) like not every game has to totally reinvent a genre to be worth playing and the areas of match three design that it does iterate on they're really well considered but it's this overall level of consideration machine that the game has that makes this place as high as it does because it's not a showcase for the machine. It could have been played on a touchscreen or on a console or even on an old machine like a Game Boy, to be honest. It yeah. wouldn't have lost anything. But it shows that the experience of the Playdate isn't just in wanging a crank round and round. It's still a games machine, first and foremost, which leads us to...
0: Bum, bum, Number one.
1: Saturday edition. Nailed it. <laughs> bom, Absolutely bom, bom, nailed it. Bom, 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 <laughs> bom, 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 bom. I said Saturday Edition was a layered onion of a game when we talked about it before, but I think that was a little off with the metaphor because the game itself is actually really quite simple, a bit like Pick Pack Pup in essence. That it's a streamlined point-and-click game. It's got direct character control, it's got truncated object and conversation interactions. And it's all these micro decisions that make it a success, even on a piece of hardware like the Playdate. The Crank, in essence, does nothing other than let you roll the lead character John's shoulders.
0: That's unbelievable. It's very wonderful I really detail. Love
1: it. I love it. And it feels like an open acknowledgement that the Playdate is a handheld console just as much as it is a Curio. Mm. So the Crank, in that way, is deliberately framed as throwaway. So straight away, you kind of realign and really focus on what makes this such a cracking adventure game, rather than thinking, oh, could it open a door here? Pretty much the entire thing outside of some of the audio design is created by one man, Mm -hmm. (laughs) solo developer Chris Macris. And in cases like this, a project can go one of two ways. You either go in one direction where a project becomes so idiosyncratically you as the developer and designer that it's a massive success because any questions or queries people could have are allayed by the confidence of the thing. In the other, creators could become so blinded by their own vision that they fluff the basics or focus too intensely on the wrong things or the wrong areas. A conversation I had recently with another friend was about comedy and how you could look at the career of Ricky Gervais as essentially, these days, like a solo, unchallenged writer, and how his career has fallen off a cliff because there is no levelling influence in his output like there was in his early career. So clearly, he needs at least some balancing input for his ideas to really find their feet and flourish. Whereas right now, he makes a suggestion and he's just too big for anyone to challenge him which leads to shows like Afterlife which I maintain for me at least could be one of the worst shows I've ever watched. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) dreadful. But Chris Macris doesn't do this with Saturday Edition. This is not Afterlife the game. Thankfully he seems to have instead taken the time to observe how things work how trends play out how players approach different genres and different hardware contexts. And with all that in mind and all the refinement the game went through again in about a five year development cycle What's resulted is an outstanding game, a really outstanding adventure game.
0: I mean, as the resident O3C host who has completed the game, <laughs> I, I can comfortably say that it sticks the landing with all of the incredible things that it sets out to do. Good. It is a masterpiece of a game. I don't quite know how it manages to be so engrossing whilst also being so small and quiet and minimalist in so many elements, but my goodness it makes for an extraordinary experience to play through it's the one game that I absolutely insisted on playing with headphones in after I sort of got to grips with what it was and how special it was because I just wanted to feast on this in just the most intimate way possible I just wanted to to plug it straight into my brain (laughs) it's the only game from the first season that I think would find a place in my top 100 games list yeah uh, although zipper may come close if i ever managed to complete that but <laughs> yeah it's an absolute no-brainer for me that saturday edition is top of the pile for the first season of playdate games it is a masterpiece it's really special We did it, Jonathan. We played all 26 games of the Playdate's first season. we bloody ranked them. There you go. That was your main course. Do some dessert. Oh, I love dessert. The best of the rest. There are simply too many games released out there now on itch.io for the Playdate, and even too many games available on the on-device catalogue for us both to have bought and played. Yeah. So instead of giving a full ranking of every single other game that exists, what we've done is we've just put together our thoughts on the best of the rest games. Games from the catalogue, side-loaded games, we've put together a top five best of the rest, starting with a tie in position five, because we've both played inevitably quite different games outside of the main season. Yeah. But my offering for the fifth best game on the play day outside of the season games is A Balanced Brew. Oh, oh. A Balanced Brew is a delightfully simple game where you control a morning unicyclist seeking to claim his first coffee of the day. The crank gives you superb control over the unicycle and your challenge is to maintain your balance as you make your way through many, many, many several stages of increasingly obtuse obstacles such as slopes, slips, slurries and sloppy bird pools. (laughs) It's really well made with a level of precision that showcases the crank to the best of its capacity. It is incredibly tough but with enough accessibility options for you to be able to make your way through the game however you need to. There's also tons of content as well to keep you pedaling for days on end. It is so tight and so superb and it's just a real showcase of what makes the playdate great. I know it's good. I've played a
1: little bit of balance Brew as well. I know it's a really tightly designed movement-based puzzle game. And I know, as you've just said, that it uses the crank really, really excellently to control your little hipster's unicycle pedals. It is probably strong enough to replace half the season entries, if we're being honest. But for me, in my fifth position, I would be remiss... Not to give my own suggestion, Fish and Feathers. I've talked about it several times on this show. The developer reckoned I'd played it more than anyone else on the planet. It's a WarioWare minigame expanded into an arcade high score chaser that I played for, no joke, probably 25 plus hours to fully unlock everything it had to offer. We'll mention a little bit later the developer Mac Vogelsang within a more collaborative project as well. But for now, take a bow, son. I was going to do an Andy Gray impression and I can't do the voice. You don't want to imitate anything that man's done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Number four, Core Fault. This is an unbelievable achievement. And I know exactly why. Because of the superb YouTube videos that the developer Squid God makes chronicling all of his creations, including this. Core Fault started with a simple idea of trying to replicate the dynamic, addictive, roguelike gameplay seen in Vampire Survivors, but on the playdate. And he came up against every challenge you can think of, trying to optimize every single speck of the innards <laughs> of the playdate to get things working. Yeah. He ended up drafting in Dave Makes to aid with the development, and together they really managed to pull off something quite incredible and also really, really fun. It boils the basics of. A like behemoth like vampire survivors into a more bite-sized pocket-fitting shape but that still gives you the same incredibly satisfying experience even though repeated playthroughs exposed a bit of the weakness for the game's longevity hopefully the core of this game is now solidified for it to be potentially developed further and expanded in the future which I would absolutely love because it is so so great it is I fully agree on this one I
1: didn't get into the same mad hype cycle that you did with vampire survivors but it was obvious from the few hours i did play of that game why it was such a good time why it was a kind of genre flip that suddenly was informing every other game releasing on steam yeah if you look for kind of the tags on that platform i think it's like bullet heaven is sometimes referred to as huh
0: that's fun it's
1: fucking everywhere like every second game that's being released is touting this as one of the features and i know that it just has a really addictive loop Core Fault was a real joy for me because it stripped enough out of Vampire Survivors by way of kind of sensible omissions to keep the thing performant on the playdate, Yeah. But still maintain much of the special source that made Vampire Survivors such a hit. So it had that loop of survive, develop, die, upgrade, repeat again and again and again. And reaching the end of the timer for the first time felt really great. Carrying on and kind of gradually upgrading my little sort of digging unit felt really good. And most of all, it's proof that Dave Makes does still know what they're doing on Hardware Like the Playdate, <laughs> even after the execrable Executive Golf TX. What's in number three? Number three, Tapeworm Disco Puzzle. Yes. I love this game. I've said before that I played it across both the Playdate and the Evercade, and it made me feel like a man from the future, <laughs> somehow uh. able to continue progress between these platforms using a magic password. Obviously, that isn't so much of the about the game as it's still essentially just because of fortuitous symmetry but it's still cool right it's cool it's a cool thing yes it's a really good action puzzle game that takes the best of snake of sokoban of games i half remember from the game boy having on like a 101 cartridge called pitman it also brings in games i've dabbled with through emulation like adventures of lolo on the nes but made that somehow it's totally its own thing you know it's got its own character it's got its own mechanics its own twists and tweaks And it's a really perfect game for the play date and beautiful looking and sounding too. It is unbelievably polished. And again, absolutely worth the asking price via the catalogue or via itch if you want to sideload it that way.
0: Yeah, it's a perfect puzzle game. I love it. I've got nothing more to add to that except that I want more. Takeo M2 or just 100 more levels.
1: Why not? Number two. This is the silver for catalogue and sideloaded games. Sparrow Solitaire. What else can we say about Sparrow Solitaire, Honestly. This is the game that Matt Vogelsang worked on after Fish and Feathers, but this time in partnership with Matt Sefton. And what these two have achieved is honestly quite astounding. They've made My Ma Solitaire somehow feel like my favourite puzzle game. Uh. And more impressively, they've made a board game of rich visual detail. It is beautifully readable on the Playdate's tiny screen. I still play around round of this game most days. It's the reason I take my Playdate to work every day, in case I get a brief 10-minute window to myself at the start or the end of the day. It's the richest and most feature-complete game of Video Mayong that has ever been made, I would venture. And I can't wait to see what the two of them cook up next for the play date because there's nothing left to add to Sparrow Solitaire. (laughs) This is not like, oh, let's have some more levels. It's like, there's fucking a million. (laughs) Like, (laughs) go and play something else. It's fine. It's fine. But I really, really want them to do more because clearly they have a big, big love. They just like this machine and make cool stuff for it. And I want
0: more. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's an incredible package, like complete with the most beautiful level of detail to every single element of the game. It's staggering. Like I said before, when we cover the game, uh, like you've just said, you won't find a better Mahjong Young Solitaire game out there, yeah. even running on machines a thousand times more powerful than the Playdate. Like, what they've achieved with Sparrow Solitaire is create just a beautiful place to exist in. I want to spend time in that world with those visuals, with that music, with that pace and that gameplay. Being able to do that with a play date is so, so special. And I really do think as I spend more time outside over the summer, this is going to be the game that I play on the small unlit screen, casting blinding sun <laughs> reflecting into my eyes. <laughs> so number one, if you've listened to this show at
1: all in the last year, you know what this is going to be. It's Bloom. We've talked about Bloom more than most AAA games on this show, but with good reason. It is an outstanding visual novel and one that makes the genre feel so much more than just, it's a book on my TV <laughs> that it's sometimes unfairly pegged as. The way you interact with this game world is lovely and tactile. The little throwaway activities like collecting gacha capsules or playing a little asteroids clone or tending to your roof garden. It makes the whole setup feel homely and surprisingly real. Mm it all acts to ground the game in like a proper lived real world experience in real life, not high fantasy. And I've got nothing against games that offer magical or unreal narratives. Yeah. But it was so refreshing to play something like Bloom where I could connect to the very real struggles, sometimes painfully so, of the lead by way of my own experience of that horrible period in your early 20s when you're suddenly thrust into adulthood, even though almost every single part of your brain Still feels like it's wearing training nappies. (laughs) The way that choices manage to feel meaningful, even though they don't actually influence the narrative, is something I haven't seen since the opening of Firewatch. And in that game, you know, you answer questions to some simple prompts that would then go on to frame the rest of a totally scripted story differently just because of the mental gymnastics that have gone on Mm. in your own head. That's unbelievable like nothing can do that that's not a game you know only games can offer that as a way of like framing an entire story and when i was playing bloom every day i felt so intensely connected to midori and the other characters in the story that if i made her answer a conversation with a joke or with kind of a curt surly response everything that then followed carried that theme and weight yeah you read it in a different tone because it's a text and texts are deliberately kind of missing information unless you're sticking a fucking emoji on the end of everything but with that removed it's like well actually they they might have been a bit annoyed at that response whereas if i'd done it in a jokey way it was like oh they just you know they didn't find it funny everything works the entire thing works it is outstanding writing delivery and a real success at every single turn we knew that rng party could get clever with language because we played and loved and blew the trumpet for backspace Buchan. but bloom is a whole other tier above You know, this is proper naturalistic dialogue that puts so many other narrative games to shame because it's not overwrought. It never comes off as old writers pretending to be youths in kind of like a soap opera script. It's believable. It's good. It's emotive. It's real. It's a genuinely breathtaking game. It's the best non-season game on the console and easily in contention for inclusion, quite
0: high up the big old top 100 list for me. I absolutely loved it yeah I mean, for sure it'd be in my top 100 list yeah i can't believe the impact this game had on me not only once but remarkably twice yeah like even though i knew where the story was going and what the game was doing it still felt worthwhile to invest my time into because of how extraordinarily well written it is like it's fitting that we're bookending this episode with examples of how important writing is in a video game yeah Lost Your Marbles really misses the mark, and in a game where dialogue is so important, you don't have any excuse for not getting it right. And Bloom proves that it doesn't have to be flashy to work, it just has to be real and communicate the emotions of the story and the character, and Bloom is a shining example from a team of developers who really understand the power of words and writing. It shows that they are smart, thoughtful, and empathetic humans, and it means that even if they don't make a game with writing or words at its core, I cannot wait to see what they do next. They are a good gang of people. So there we go. That is our entire Playdate ranking special. It's the end of this season of the podcast. Uh, we're going to be taking a break, as you know, from listening to our announcements. Please do head over to o3c.games and sign up for our newsletter for no other reason than we'll also be uh, handing out some special Playdate awards to some standout games from the games that exist on the Playdate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's going to be a bonus blog post that. That we're going to be sending out with our in in one of our forthcoming newsletters. In addition to sending out like loads of cool stuff that will keep you entertained whilst we're taking a little bit of a break from the podcast. But we really really hope that you've enjoyed our coverage of the playdate and the playdate games. We hope that it's tickled your fancy to uh, to get a playdate or to put yourself on the waiting list for one. as is probably <laughs> the case in reality. If you are a playdate owner. If you've been enjoying these games, if you're playing other games that we haven't talked about, please do let us know. We'd we'd love to get more recommendations to play. I'm still playing the latest games that are being updated on the catalogue. There are some amazing games that we haven't even talked about at all. And I will do when we come back, for sure, definitely get in touch with us at O3C Games tell us what you're playing on your play date. tell us what you're playing not on your playdate tell us what you're playing with unless it's your willy don't want to know <laughs> keep it to yourself <laughs> yeah but if you do want to tell somebody you can tweet Chris at Chaz underscore Hodges yep that's me don't tell me though but tell me about <laughs> other things at Jonathan Dunn thank you so much for listening and uh, engaging with us over the last season and uh, we really do hope that we will see you on the other side of a break enjoy your summers And we'll enjoy ours. Yeah. We'll do our best anyway.